Uh, hi, this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast 29, I think. Uh, and with me uh, again is Corey Morningstar in Toronto. Hi, Corey. Hi. Good morning. And uh, Hiroyuki Hamada in New York. Hi, everyone. Um, and Johan Edebo. Did I pronounce that right, Johan? It's fine. <laughs> Close enough for mm -hmm. um, podcasts. Uh, who's in Sweden in the same time zone as, as I am. Um, so, uh, great. I, w I was very happy to get all of you um, together to do this. And... Um, I think I think there's a lot um, a lot of stuff to discuss. We've all been um, on social media in 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 and on various platforms recently talking about things. Um, but I want to let uh, Johan introduce himself a little bit um, because nobody knows him in in this group, and um, and then we'll we'll kind of start talking about a lot of the stuff going on right now. Um, but, but Johan, tell us briefly, I guess, about yourself. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, yeah, so, so it's, um, I gotta say, it's quite the honor to be invited to this, uh, this conversation. I have uh, been reading all of your work and I, I very much like it and I'm very impressed by it. Uh, so, I'm uh, I'm an academic philosopher in in Sweden at Uppsala University, where I am involved in a project on AI, that is artificial intelligence and its uh, various effects on society. Um, but my interest uh, here it mainly regards uh, socio uh, geopolitics, uh, basically, uh, and. Uh, should I, should I go on uh, and tell you something about why I, I first got in touch with you, John? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, as I suppose you all, uh, that, that regards you all too, I, I've been following this, uh, this development uh, around COVID uh, for about a year now. And, uh, I concluded that, that there was uh, there was something peculiar going the the way we had one consistent media narrative put forth here by the the, the entire corporate media very early on and so on uh, and while I think there's been a, a, a fine response from alternative media uh, all over the place. I think it basically lacks uh, coherence. I think it basically lacks this uh, this uh, unifying critical perspective. Uh, so, so I, I think there are many important facts being discussed and presented all over the place, uh, such as uh, the disappearance of the flu and and the problems on regarding the, the PCR tests and so on. But there is no cohesive critical narrative that uh, is based in classical class analysis and criticism of power and, and uh, media and so on. And, and from what I gathered when I read your stuff, it was that you, you are basically moving in this direction of trying to, to uh, attain this bird's eye view, trying to create this uh, 
this coherent uh, critical perspective upon the whole situation. And that's, uh, I, I thought it would be really great to try to create something like that. I, I mean, then a, a kind of a clear and accessible critical assessment of the whole situation that's based in uh, traditional class analysis, analysis of power and the way media uh, creates the consent and so on. That, that's how I come into this. Right. Basically. No, and and um, I, I think that um, this is something actually that Corey and, and Hiroyuki and I have talked about before as well, um, that somehow there is a needed um, narrative or a, a kind of step-by-step, -step, very basic explanation um, mm. for all the things that, that I think people intuit are wrong with, with mm. the official narrative, um, but, but don't have the background or the you know, wherewithal somehow to, to, um, to formulate into a, a, to a political statement, a political yeah. vision. Um, and um, so, so yeah, so when you wrote me that letter, I was, it was really wonderful to get because I thought, yes, this is, this is, um, this is a project we're, we're already talking about. Um, and uh, yeah, it's funny like today, already... go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I felt like, like you were already uh, at the beginning stage of, of doing something like this. And I, I felt it would be great to really, create something accessible to to the general uh, population. I mean, there are lots of incisive and, and good analyses uh, on particular topics, but like a basic overview, which people can actually use, I think is lacking. Sorry, go on. It's, it's um, I started to say it was funny today. I had to, on Fridays, I, I drive down to Risa and I had to visit my bank today. I rarely do, but I got my $600 check from Joe Biden. So I had to, <clears throat> I had to deposit it. And it's today was the first time I have gone anywhere where I had to wear a mask. They asked me to put on a mask and they had a whole stack of them there for me. Um, and but what was amazing is you can't fucking breathe in those masks. They're extraordinarily uncomfortable. Um, and they fogged my glasses up. And then I ended up having to take it off to talk to the teller. Anyway, the whole thing is such like kabuki. It's so weird. Anyway. Um, but yeah, Corey, um, do you have any thoughts? Um, just Oh God, I wish I had no thoughts. I have so many thoughts <laughs> that I can't even sleep at night. Yeah, everything's insane and getting crazier. I, I guess what I'm watching, it just seems to be almost like a stronger current. I feel like this is basically corporate power, like, you know, how they trawl the ocean. They're trawling the populations and just gathering it, gathering up more and more people into this whole idea of together, right? Like I, mm -hmm. I, I started writing about that. That's sort of, sort of where I began. That was um, sort of the, the beginning of this whole social engineering project, um, you know, with 350 on board and Greenpeace and all the, you know, quote unquote leaders of these NGOs working with um, all the corporations that comprise 
uh, We Mean Business, which works with the United Nations and World Economic Forum, which is partnered with the United Nations. So basically the whole idea is to make it condition us, make it very, very normal for us to be working, you know, holding hands with corporate power. And, be, right. and it, it's becoming very, very normal. And especially um, witnessing what we've seen sort of um, unleashed in the past few days with the Rihanna and Fenty, Greta Thunberg um, thing with the farmers in India. Right. You see that more and more and more as, as I was looking at, at um, Rihanna Fenty's background with um, and the organizations that she's involved with, which are all um, like colonial projects of France and Canada, Germany, nor um, I, I can't remember if Norway's in there, probably. You know, and, and this is all, it's not hidden anymore. Like One Young World and Global Citizen, which are, I mean, they're actually grotesque. But if you're a teenager, this is what your kids are seeing and this is what they're used to, right? And if I was to show you, John, or you here, or you, or you um, Johan, do I have that right, Johan? Yeah. Um, you, you would be, you, you'd, you'd be stunned to see it, but if you're 14 or 15 or 16 or 20, you're quite used to that by now. And this whole time they've been connecting and molding and shaping your children on their mobiles or wherever on their computer in their bedroom. And we didn't, we don't even have any idea, right? Like they have more influence right. than us, I guess I'm trying to say. And more and more that's becoming so apparent to me, like just how normalized this has become. And so again, it's very, very much and again, I see that as well, like this whole sort of Nazi ideology behind this capture and intent and target on the youth populations. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I'm sort of rambling, but that's sort of what I know. Yeah, no, the youth demographic. I mean, the, it's such a just naked, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, assault on youth on that market. Um, and that's, you know, and that's a factor in India, too, right? I mean, you have this massive farmer protest, but what is it, 50% of India is under the age of 25? I think you wrote that. Yeah, I was reading yeah. it. Um, so it's a massive youth market, and Asia in general is a massive youth market. Um, so these, you know, these things are, are not accidental, uh, and, and uh, the, the sudden appearance of... Greta and and Rihanna. Um, I must have missed the memo where Rihanna suddenly became a celebrity activist, but I miss a lot of memos. So, um, but but it's you know I've read various interpretations, um, but it but it seems like in some sense um, that farmers' protest loomed as as a threat. Um, yeah. And and so it had to be neutralized somehow or co-opted somehow um, and and choose the word that you think most appropriate. Um, but but that's certainly what it feels like, like the the the, the farmers will be um, guided towards some neoliberal economic solution that is no solution at all. I mean, they will be sacrificed that way and neutralized that way. And Modi's a fascist. So um, God knows what really he might want to do with it. Um, anyway. Just a brief remark. Sorry, can I just uh, say something? 
Yes, please. And yeah. I'm going to stop. Johan, speak really close to the mic. And this will get edited yeah. out, so don't worry. Go on. Okay. Uh, just a, a thought relating to, to what Corey said earlier, that I, in, in my, uh, it feels to me like much of the, the popular youth uh, influencers on the left are basically being recuperated, to use the, the Marxist term. I mean, that we, what, what we're seeing to some extent is, is these uh, social justice neoliberals in some, to, to some extent, because there is no, they lack this basic analysis to, to criticize these structures of power. Uh, and I think uh, that's, that's a problem that should, could be addressed by providing these, these kinds of accessible overviews that put theory into practice in some sense. Is that also your experience regarding the, the popular younger left movement in, in the US and Canada? Well, in the case of in the case of Thunberg, who obviously I've written a lot about, I mean that's we're creating different animals now. I mean Thunberg is an actual creation. I mean Thunberg, Greta Thunberg trademark has to be understood not as a young girl, but as the world's most powerful brand. I mean, she's a product that's been created, a marketing product from inception. I, I mean, she's a complete creation and she has to be understood like right now. It, I mean, the irony is she's um, become this voice for, for the farmer's movement. She's a creation of the very corporate entities that want to crush every last farmer on this planet and that want to capture all life on this planet. She is a voice for the New Deal for Nature, voice for the planet, which is the capture and enclosure of all life on this planet. So yeah, we're it's a it's a new thing. I mean, I watched a documentary a couple of weeks ago. They've they have um, I guess this big girl band. I can't remember the name, I'd never heard of it before, but I apparently there's a hundred members. And then recently there was a new face and everyone, I guess, because they're so enthralled by this, um, this girl band, they were, it was every, everyone was talking about it, this new face and who was it and where'd she come from and how'd she become a star overnight. And anyway, um, they, someone dug into it and found out she was digital. She's, she was not even a person. And I'm not sure what's happened since then, whether she's fully accepted or whether society said, oh, well, she's not real. But I mean, that's where it's going. And you can see on Instagram, I think we had a few pictures through you can, John, of these hmm. digital personas. Yeah. Right. Being followed. So it's getting really, really weird really quickly. And yeah, like there, there is no historical um, references. There is no, there is no marks. There's no history. There's no. I mean, today that this, what we call activism in quotes is completely finance. It's a creation of foundations. It serves foundations, um, their lobby groups. It's not activism, it's, it's eco-fascism, right? And so it, right. it's completely, <laughs> I, it's, not, it's not activism at all, right? It's imperialism and everything, right. well. everything's getting lost. The, the, 
you, the amnesia involved is really extraordinary in in the general public and i i i find it in people i know that that are older people i've known for many years but also in young people um it's it it's almost a conscious um um, self-protective psychological mechanism or something. People have just erased the past because it has become um, accusatory and threatening in, in some fashion or other, and or that's how it's experienced anyway. Um, the subjective experience of history is, is, um, is, is accusatory, and so it's wiped out. And people no longer remember the Vietnam War. I mean, they don't remember when it started they don't remember what it was about they don't remember the u.s role in it not really um and that's you know and that's a pretty recent event so um yeah it's it's a problem and the, the fact that there are virtual activists now um making appearances is somehow not surprising i guess um uh because it's not you know the the it's not just that there are virtual activists it's that real activists are becoming more like virtual activists themselves mm. you know that's kind of the dialectic in there and and um and that's what i think in a in a broader sense we're we all sense in some way is um, is that people have lost, are slowly being leached, their humanity is slowly being leached from them. And, um, and what is left are, are um, a, a mere semblance of the human somehow. It's, it's like the conceptual space for resistance is being colonized. So there's no real space to, to conceive of opposing the, the process of the system. And that's what I'm trying to, to get at. There's yeah. no no conceptual tools, no no aesthetic tools, or or yeah. Um, no, it's it's funny. The the um, I have a friend in Los Angeles who's um, who's a, a therapist, and actually he used to be in the film industry, but he's a very wealthy guy. Um, or maybe not very wealthy. He's wealthy. Uh, he lives in a very posh neighborhood on the west side of LA, and um, and he's a very smart guy. He's a very 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 sharp guy. Um, and and something is bothering because he keeps sending me messages about the COVID lockdown, the, the cover story, the master narrative, because something bothers him, and yet he he insists that. Um, I am trafficking in conspiracy theory, but then he returns with another question, you know, and another argument. And, um, and uh, I, I think that's not, I don't think that's an isolated uh, phenomenon, uh, but, but he doesn't have, he doesn't trust a, a, a radical political analysis of things. He just, it's just right now yet. It may change. I hope it changes. Um, this is sort of like a step too far for him. He's not familiar with it, and and it's not something he's he's going to easily accept. Um, anyway, why is um, it? Why do you think it is, you guys, that we in especially here Canada, the United States, 
media is so powerful. We know that um, not only the mainstream media, but all the, um, you know, the alternative media is all financed and um, by foundations and it's all owned by media, you know, media conglomerates, mm -hmm. the same corporations, the same billionaires. And yet everyone um, believes every word and, um, you know, and then journalists are, you know, even very good journalists are more sort of fringe, you know, like you're, like you're talking about with your, your friend, he just can't quite go there, but people are reading everything. It's almost like we wait to be told what to believe, right? Like no one, believe, no one gives a fuck about farmers. And then uh, Rihanna and Greta say farmers, everyone's like, oh, farmers, 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 right? right? No one cares about, uh, you know what I mean? No one cares about yes. Yemen right now. But then if, if a celebrity says tomorrow, um, you know, Yemen, oh, Yemen, Yemen, and then that's over. Um, right. It's right. just, and, and the whole funny thing about this mass, millions of farmers have been in pictures over the past few days and few months i mean no one's talked about it up to now but we see millions of farmers protesting they don't have masks on there's no mask yeah, not a single so mask. where's the mask police right what happened to the mask police that live here i don't know like so all these people the same people that are going on about the mass in that instance no one even even makes um you know an offhand statement you just pretend they're wearing masks i guess um, you know, you know, <laughs> well, you know, I just wanted to touch on something quick, quickly. Um, and then, Hiro, you can want you to say something the 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 media thing, because and because I mentioned Vietnam, there was a great alternative press, underground press that was an anti-war voice um, during the Vietnam era. Um, and they helped end the war, actually. There was an extraordinary amount of great writing from, from you know, the Detroit Free Press, the LA Free Press, the, the papers in San Francisco, others in New York, and I forget the names of them. But there, there was, and after 75, after the end of the war, the, the government made a conscious decision to, um, to shut down those kind of voices. They were too big a problem. And they really did. And but there was a there was a parallel phenomenon going on, which is something worth talking about. I may write about at some point, which was um, the way in which those a lot of those radical voices, certainly not all of them, but a lot of them and a lot of the younger ones who had been anti-war and protesting were guided into kind of new age um, pseudo mysticism, pseudo spirituality, all the kind of gurus from and there's a jillion of them, right? Um, uh, the, everything from Est to, to Reverend Moon to, you know, um, the various Indian Maharajid and, um, and all of those movements were actually very authoritarian in, in a lot of ways. Um, and yet that seemed to hold some kind of peculiar appeal. Um, and it was certainly encouraged in some way or other. There's a book out, and I can't think of the name of it, um, from something to slow, I forget, slogans to something. Anyway, um, I'll think of it. And uh, uh, that, that chronicles that, that, that kind of neutralizing of, of the underground press where it became um, 
about these these you know personal journeys of of um, enlightenment instead of collective political protest. Anyway, um, Hiroyuki, what's up? Yes. <laughs> um. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's a. Uh, uh, um, um, I mean, it, it comes back to the fact that the, everything is uh, done structurally, um, and um, uh, with the media sticking to certain things. It, um, like when we communicate, we communicate through um, um, a uh symbols. You know, we don't communicate with the facts, actual facts and uh, context. We use language, which is a um, um, collection of symbols. So when the communication process is governed by capitalist entities, everything is gonna be molded into this framework and um, things that are not very convenient uh, for the structure will be truncated. So when we talk about COVID or uh, whatever, um, it's very hard because the assumptions are different, uh, the uh, the facts are different, and uh, and there are already uh, ready-made narratives um, which we right. are supposed to follow. So. Um, the consequence will be we'll be just arguing among the, ourselves uh, or misguided into uh, movement, which doesn't include uh, essential things that's going to overthrow the system, you know, because it's coming from the capitalist structure. So, uh, so like Johan was saying, it, it you know it is crucial to look at what's going on from uh, the broader perspective of uh, history of struggle. Right. Well, Johan, before we started recording, we were talking about gerrymander. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you want to riff on that a little bit? Because I think um, that's kind of important. Yeah, I think it... it um, the, the, I had it prepared to, to read a page from his 1990 book, and I think it relates quite well to, to what you're discussing here. Uh, just let me uh, give you a brief remark. Uh, I, I think that the media, the power in the media, in the, in the capital, the, the ownership of the media is, is so centralized now and so synergistically controlled that you have basically a discourse where criticism of the power structure that, that was like mainstream in the left five, 40 or 50 years ago, it's basically considered conspiracy theories nowadays. So, so you get a situation where self-identified anarchists support Joe Biden because Joe Biden does the bidding of big pharma, basically. So, so that's an <laughs> interesting situation. But, but if you want to, I can read you this piece from, from Jerry Mander's book. It's, yeah, yeah. But introduce Jerry Mander because a lot of people, yeah, yeah. I first knew of Jerry Mander with that first book, Four Arguments. Mm-hmm. But go ahead, you do it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I also knew him from that book from the seventies, uh, four arguments against the, the uh, against television or against the, the use of television. 
Yeah. And he's, you can consider him some kind of, of a, he's in my view is a philosopher, a critic of technology, and, and um, he has been uh, uh, emphasizing the, the really the, the neo-colonial structures of Western capitalism and modern technology and how it affects uh, indigenous people around the world. And, and this, uh, this book uh, is where he introduces his ideas pertaining to this, and it's called In the Absence of the Sacred, the Failure of Technology and Survival of the Indian Nations. It's from 92, I see here. And he's just been discussing this, uh, the effect of the World Fair in 1939 and how it shaped the popular imagination and people's expectations for the future and so on. And uh, let me just read you uh, the, the page here. I, it'll take perhaps five minutes, I think. Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, the new value system that was sold in the 40s and 50s was designed to fuel the most massive expansion of the US industrial and marketing sectors in history. The American way of life became an advertising theme. It drew an explicit equation between how much you consumed and how American you were. During the Truman-Eisenhower years, the American ideal of consumerism was directly juxtaposed with Russia's emphatically non-consumerist stance. In the 50s, buying a washing machine was a blow against communism. This value system incorporated certain key attitudes. Technological innovation is good. It is always good. It aids health, it saves labor, it is the engine that drives economic growth, which in turn drives the American standard of living upward, which benefits all people. Technical innovation promotes democracy, freedom, and leisure. Technical and scientific progress will spread around the world and relieve all people of the awful toil that has oppressed them since the dawn of time. Someday every place will look like the world's fair. It is inevitable. You can't turn back the clock. For me, going through my teenage years in that period, for my family and neighbors, and I believe for most Americans, there was the disposition to go along with it all. Swept along by the rhetoric and hype, it was as though we found ourselves living within a gigantic environmental theater. We sat and watched well, they rolled away one diorama and replaced it with another and then another. While our, our world was being dramatically transformed, while the places we loved were fast deteriorating, while lifestyles were sharply altered, while the forest receded, while open land was paved over and built upon, while pollution and smog became commonplace, while small towns began to look like New York City and New York City began to resemble Fritz Lang's metropolis, we watched as if it were a movie. To say that we, the public, had no participation in these vast changes would be inaccurate. We lived in the world. We interacted with the changing environment. By our silence, we gave our tacit approval. But no one ever inquired into what we thought about it all. No one ever indicated that there could be a question about the process. It all happened so fast and with so much power, it was difficult to grasp what was changing as it was changing. The process itself overpowered all doubt. We asked no questions. We never had time to think it through. 
even if we'd had the time, we didn't have the thoughts or the words by which to articulate our concerns. There was no language of technological evaluation, nor is there one now. The parameters of the discussion, even the parameters of thought were predefined by corporate, governmental and scientific institutions. No formal means existed by which ordinary people could engage in discussions or debates or could hear the pros and cons of what was happening. There were no national referenda, save for what appeared in the, me in the media, and the media reports were mainly confined to advertising or government predictions. If there existed an alternative view, it remained within intellectual and cultural circles not visible to the average American. In the absence of an alternative vision, the paradigm was confirmed that technological innovation was good, invariably good, and would be the principal means by which our society would solve its problems and produce a better world. So that's it. That's great. Um, Corey, any thoughts? That's amazing. I, I like listening to that. Um, Profound, right? Prophetic. It's so good. When was that written? 1992? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's how I sort of have felt even the past 10 years, like watching even in my own neighborhood, just watching all my trees disappear in like the few blocks where I live in over, I, I don't know, 150 mature trees have been cut down. Everything beautiful disappearing. It's getting uglier and uglier and no one notices. I, I feel sometimes like I'm drowning in, in ugliness, yeah. right? And on um, just lack of, lack of, I don't know, like lack of like true mental stimulation. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great read. I, I've never read that before or heard of that. Well, he, you know, his first book in the 70s, Four Arguments Against the Use of Television, I think that was the title, um, uh, because he was an advertising executive originally, um, an ad man and, and worked in marketing and became disillusioned. And, um, uh, <clears throat> and then he wrote this book and it was, it was one of the first books um, suggesting that, that that media, television in particular, was a dangerous thing um, and would have long-term psychological consequences. Uh, and I, was, I read it probably in the late 70s myself, if not the early 80s, and, um, and was very struck by it. And um, I remember now that I actually read that book in the 90s, but... Uh, <clears throat> I had kind of forgotten about it, so it's nice to it's nice to hear it again. Uh, you know, but I go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I just have one thing to add to like that. Um, this whole idea, the great what they call it now, the Great Reset, Global Green New Deal, Build Back Better. Is there any other words? I think I've got them all. Um, and I mean that the one thing that should that people need to understand when you're talking about doubling the global infrastructure within the next 15 to 20 years, that is not decreasing, that is not mitigating climate, <laughs> that is not protecting biodiversity, right? I, I mean, I'm so, I, I keep saying this is not about the climate, this is not about protecting biodiversity, yeah. you know, um, at the same, so anyway, that just sort of, that reminds me of that. 
like where we're going that the mining, I mean, if you just follow the mining, it's, it's just mind blowing how much, how, how the stocks are going up in mining, not just that, but the mining needed to create this, whatever you want to call it, the great set, great reset, the fourth industrial um, revolution is just mind blowing. It's over, it's over the top. It's again, not ecological, not environmental, not green, not, not any of these things. No, it's the, it's the opposite of that. I yeah. Mean, and it's, it's hyper industrialization. Yeah. Like what's it take to get through to people to see this is a lie, right? You're being sold a lie. Um, but people want to believe. Well, people are, are, people are, are preoccupied with, with the trivial, you know, with, with the latest tweet from AOC and, and these meaningless, you know, Trump's um, impeachment. I mean, this, these, these absolutely meaningless little mini spectacles that are trotted out daily. And meanwhile, the actual culture, Western culture is, is completely being obliterated. And this is what I feel constantly this I carry around this this kind of sadness because I think um, theater is dead, live performance is dead. But this stuff may well not come back in any form, and if it does come back, it will be um, in in an absolutely very very narrowly controlled um, manner uh, for a very um, prescribed audience and and. Um, and and that's the you know they they imagine the people running this driving you know, the reset or whatever you want to call it and even even the 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 leaders of government who are not who who are connected to the ruling class but not to that that sort of vanguard faction of that are the reset people um, because I think the ruling class is is not a of just one piece, but even they um, imagine um, this this hyper AI driven future and whatever that means to them. And that's a really interesting topic that Johan can talk about too, um, because I, you know, I I wrote about this the other day that that. <clears throat> So you have this mining that you have written about, Corey, that is staggering, and it is. It's just it, it, it's a stag. Well, like the amount yeah, of and the, and the deep sea mining cars, for example, right? Um, but then you have this this fantasy, this AI fantasy, um, it, which are people are plugged in in various ways. In the you know, we have nanobots in your brain, and we're just, and all of these things that are just ludicrous, and that 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 are not going to happen. And if they do, it will be catastrophic. Um, the failure rate will be catastrophic for all of it. It's not going to go as planned um, because uh, stuff wears out, things age. It's like, it's like these people live in a, in a, a subjective, um, how do I want to say this? That the, they imagine a world that has never existed and never will exist. It's it, they live in the Jetsons future or something, mm -hmm. and it's not real. It's unreal, and it's frightening that um, what seems, at least to me, so obvious 
um, has such traction with so many people. Um, but but Johan, you're you're somebody well versed in this, so maybe you should comment. Maybe um, just to, we've we've. Uh... I had this project on AI and, and the effects on society rolling for about a year. Uh, but but uh, I, I just let me retrace you a bit. I, I think a good argument can be made like that the total electrification or the, the supplying industrial society with renewable energy is simply not physically possible. And I, I think that's a, a good way to go. But, but I also was thinking about what you said earlier, Corey, that in a sense we are surrounded by ugliness that the, the culture that is produced by this uh, this society is um, it's not very very pleasant it's not very living in a sense and and i think just as you cannot like compete with the the propaganda of, of the mass media but i think that art can pierce through it and and here's where i'm interested in in what you how you think about this concept of yours, aesthetic resistance, and how it can be employed in in facilitating this kind of critique, this kind of overview I'm I'm envisioning. Uh, what would you say about that, uh, Hiroki? Uh, you haven't been. Uh, uh, I, I think I, I feel I have taken much time of the of the program, so please fill in. Well, I think, but I think, <clears throat> I mean, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, at times on podcasts that that I, I think you know uh, aesthetic education is critically important um and that we are surrounded by ugliness it gets ever uglier and um you know i remember when when i was living in poland um in krakow for a while they decided for practical reasons having to do with what deteriorating water pipes and stuff that they would dig up the water pipes in the town square, the main square, medieval square. And, um, and then they would re um, pave the whole thing with, with paving stones again, but they, but, but they repaved it with computer modeling, right? They, they didn't have artisans come in and, carve the stones and put them back in place they just they did it cheap and it was um with computers and it was absolutely uniform and monotonous and extraordinarily ugly and and people were pretty horrified um and i remember thinking but this is the future this is the future uh this is what we're going to see it is because so many people can't tell the difference and um and I remember people asking me, why are you so upset? Why did, but this is new and it's clean. It's much more modern looking. And, and I said, no, but it's just, it's just hideous. It's just nauseatingly ugly. And, and I don't know how to explain to you why that is ugly. If, if you can't see it yourself, that's very hard, right? That's a very hard thing. Um, people that have not been exposed to the difference, um, that have no aesthetic education at all, um, you're, that's a really uphill battle. And of course you see it in Hollywood and, and you know, Hollywood um, has been, has been um, instrumental in, in um, 
the the nullification or pacification of dissent and 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 radical voices and even working class voices and to the point today where it is absolutely a propaganda arm of of um, the State Department and and Pentagon and and that's all it does and it just turns out the most empty and infantile product imaginable stuff that that is is so so rudimentary so primitive in its in its construction that it's it's unwatchable but millions of people do watch it um and so that's that seems to me a, um something that's that's of huge importance i mean jonathan beller has has talked about this cinematic mode of production is a is a good book difficult book but a very good book um and, uh, um, well, you, know, me, you know, John, uh, let me comment on uh, what uh, Johan was saying about uh, the uh, essence of uh, aesthetic resistance. Uh, from, um, from a perspective of uh, someone who work in the studio making things, um, uh, it, I have to emphasize that when something happens in the creative process, uh, artists observe actual uh, materials, actual context, and um, the, um, the real interaction of things create something profound. And this is uh, essential. Um, uh, thing about the process that has to happen, and um, uh, and and I always think that there's a parallel between that and uh, uh, Marxist theory of um, uh, materialism. Um, you work with uh, actual context and the dialectic uh, dynamics, and uh, you uh, look at the class structure and all that. And when things are truncated by representations of capitalism, uh, we lose ability to do this. Absolutely. And um, so th this, this is, um, uh, um, when I think about what art uh, aesthetics uh, can offer, uh, this is really a significant uh, thing. And, uh, um, but the sad thing is that the um, uh, the system has been really, really uh, uh, utilizing uh, um, ability of the artist to um, uh, work with the system, embellish, <laughs> uh, you know, the authority and uh, um, uh, uh, make sense out of all the contradictions in, in a uh, very detrimental ways. So, um, you know, people, artists working for the church, work, uh, artists working for the popes, wor artists working for kings and queens, um, you know, that, you know, that's uh, one aspect of the history of art. And um, so, um, yeah, there is uh, duality, uh, uh, in talking about uh, aesthetic as, as well. Well, one thing to just mm -hmm. note quickly, and then I want to get Corey to say something that that 
you know, the in the United States, arts education is so bad um, and has been so bad for 50 years that it was better. There was no arts education than the arts education <laughs> provided. And I remember when the National Endowment for the Arts went bankrupt, I thought, well, good, you know, um, because at least we won't have to have people unlearn that stuff. Um, we can kind of begin at scratch, perhaps. But anyway, Corey. Well, um, I, I'd like to add to that. I, I mean, I think actually, perhaps all people do are affected by that ugliness. And even if they can't articulate and even articulate that, and even if they don't understand it, I think even on a subconscious level, this descent into ugliness is part and parcel of the epidemic of mental illness and depression, right? That is so um, profound, right? In Western, in Western right. um, culture. And I, I think like to me, I'm, I, and that's what I feel. That's a part of it. And a part of that is the disconnection from nature, which is um, again, tied into why everything has become so ugly because of that disconnect uh, um, and working um, against nature. And so, yeah, anyway, I just think there's um, something about that, about mental illness and depression, right? And, and the ugliness, I, I think that's all goes together. Yeah, and I, but I think another part of that, I just want to add this quickly, that, that, um, the way aesthetics is treated, the way art is treated in, in Western societies today is that it's tied into progress and, and the, you know, that art must have a purpose. Adorno said kind of famously that the radical nature of art is in its uselessness. Mm. And that's something I think most Americans mm. at least would not understand at all. Um, and, and because there is this instrumental thinking, this, this, um, um, trust in progress and purpose and result and goal um, and all of these things that that really are kind of anathema to to creativity and right right and, um, creation of any sort so anyway um, John brief comment to, sorry can I come in yeah go ahead yeah, sorry. Uh, so when uh, I think it was two years ago here in Sweden, there was a um, there was a TV program in, in the the old state uh, television where they basically they, they just placed a camera in the wilderness and they uh, followed reindeer herds moving, uh, migrating their seasonal migration, and, and it was like uh, millions of people suddenly tuned in to watch this. So I think there's a hunger for for this. Uh, this other view, this other type of aesthetics, this uh, this yeah, this return to nature, return to the more authentic things, that is uh, untapped, that can be uh, utilized in some well, sense. Well, they did they did that in Norway too. They had a camera on the prow of a boat that sailed up the entire coast of Norway up to Finnmark and back down again to Christiansen or somewhere, and it was. <laughs> It was like, I don't know, um, a couple of weeks. And that was all it was, was <laughs> a camera shooting the water in the coastline and millions of people sat mm. and watched it um, mm. at, at great length, you know. Um, 
but I don't know if that's not a particularly Scandinavian thing. I'm not sure. Um, but there is a hunger for something that is that people feel is missing. There's a recognition that there's an absence. I th I think that's obvious in a sense. I mean, there is a, a profound uh, beauty in uh, uh, organic uh, harmony we we can observe in in the nature. It's uh, it's 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 amazing. It's um, yeah, right. Guys. Yeah. Um, wait, can I do my reading now for this episode? Yeah. Where yes. you guys have to guess who it is. <laughs> okay. And then we can, and then it will open up into a new discussion. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Ready, Johan? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. In one form or another, social and physical distancing measures are likely to persist after the, pandem the pandemic itself subsides justifying the decision in many companies from different industries to accelerate automation. After a while, the enduring concerns about technological unemployment will recede as societies emphasize the need to restructure the workplace in a way that minimizes close human contact. Indeed, automation technologies are particularly well suited to a world in which human beings can't get too close to each other or are willing to reduce their interactions. Our lingering and possibly lasting fear of being infected with a virus, COVID-19 or another, will thus speed the relentless march of automation, particularly in the fields most susceptible to automation. In 2016, two academics from Oxford University came to the conclusion that up to 86% of jobs in restaurants 75% of jobs in retail and 59% of jobs in entertainment could be automized by 2035. These three industries are among those the hardest hit by the pandemic in which automating for reasons of hygiene and cleanliness will be a necessity that in turn will further accelerate the transition towards more tech and more digital. There is an additional phenomenon set to support the expansion of automation when economic distancing might follow social distancing. As countries turn inward and global companies shorten their super efficient but highly fragile supply chains, automation and robots that enable more local production while keeping costs down will be in great demand. And I have no idea. Yeah, I know who that is. The, uh... <laughs> <laughs> You're too good at this, Hiroyuki. <laughs> Ding, 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 Hiroyuki, yay. Uh, yeah, the, the Klaus, right? The, yes. Uh, the, oh, old, uh, the Great Reset. Klaus Schwab, the Great Reset, COVID-19, published last June. Wow. Yeah. What? Yeah. Hmm. That's reasonably terrifying. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is part of our engineering, our reconditioning program, right? The rewiring of our brains right now. Yeah, the whole mask and social distancing. I mean, it's all out in the open, and uh, uh, the meaning of this is, uh, I think, it's sort of interesting because, um, um, I mean, w whatever um, processed uh, within the capitalist structure will be uh, accepted as normal, accepted as legitimate. So. Uh, people can talk about it one way or the other, but 
at the end, if we don't get into the real meaning, real context of exploitation and subjugation, uh, it's hard to um, get at the, uh, um, uh, the essence of what we should oppose. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, no, I do. You know, uh, it's- Well, so there's uh, something else, th there's something else that runs alongside listening to that, you reading that. Um, Corey, there's something else that runs alongside all of this marketing of the reset, marketing of the you know Green New Deal and all of it, and that is a, a strange sex negative Puritanism um, that that uh, uh, has really taken hold. And and uh, I had a friend in Los Angeles um, who's a young guy who said, "It's you can't meet girls anymore." And um, I thought, yeah, um, it must be very difficult if you're 18 to 25. Um, I, I can't imagine even. But in the U.S., certainly, and probably in Canada and maybe across Europe, that, that sex negative thing is, is acute. And this is where I always feel like quoting Wilhelm Reich. But um, uh, it... it I don't have a, a punchline to this. I don't have an exclamation, but but I have felt this, and um, the fact that that people are in fact having less sex, producing fewer children, um, is is not insignificant in in this entire discussion. I think. Well, I mean the the um, uh, uh, the tendency, the fascist tendency is always um, against um, intimacy and um, uh, um, sex and um, uh, humanity. And, uh, and there's also economic policy of um, reducing the population to be uh, reasonably governed within the, uh, uh, their agendas. Um, right. Well, that, you know, that that looms over all of this. And Johan, you may have a thought about this. I know Corey does. And, and I want you to both comment. But um, the depopulation thing is 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 real. I mean, these people, you know, the 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 that segment of the ruling class that is driving this, the, you know, Prince Charles and, and, and Bill Gates and all of these people, they absolutely believe in depopulation. I mean, they are eugenicists in, in one way or another. And, um, you know, what they imagine as too many people is really, of course, too many black and, and brown people. But, but that's, that's seen the, 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 sexual alienation that is setting in is perceived by them as a good thing that's according to plan and they they think that um cleaning up the earth it means getting rid of um unwanted people you know useless eaters surplus population anyway thoughts on any of this you guys just quickly here i, I I mean, when I when I grew up, of course, the the idea that the earth was overpopulated was was very widespread, at least in Sweden, and, and that population growth in in the so-called third world should uh, must be uh, addressed somehow. But but I mean, here also, I think 
with regard to the the effects of the lockdown policies on the on the third world so to, so to speak it's i'm so surprised that the the established uh, radical left doesn't really address that issue at all there there's not almost nobody who who raises the issue that we have like how many hundred more millions on like starvation in a starvation situation all over the world in comparison to last year that is just a quick remark yeah no um corey well that's sort of the point that i'm always trying to make we don't really have a radical left movement anymore and if we do, we don't hear of them or see them, right? They're kept out of, of the media and kept safely away where no one will, will read or write or partake. Um, yeah, because that's a real thing. And it, that is unbelievable, you know, that we that's not one of the main issues being discussed is the annihilation, the crushing of the global South, right? I mean, that is disturbing. And yet, there it is, right? And and so, what is this left that we have today that we discuss? Yeah, I, I mean, in the U.S., the left. I mean, of course, there are exceptions to this. And I mean, you know, not many, but and probably we know the ones that are the exception. But by and large, um, the left or liberal left and are concerned with. Um, I, domestic issues, identity issues, identity equality, um, and certain kinds of um, social justice reforms. Not that those are not necessary or real even. Um, you know, prison reform, um, prison abolition is, these things are good and they, they often result in the actual material improvement in a lot of people's lives. But yeah. um, but but what's neglected is is foreign policy is and is the history of U.S. foreign policy, and that you can't separate, you know, the crushing of the global South, as you put it, you can't separate that from the militarized and murderous domestic police departments in the United States that that kill a couple thousand people every year, um, most of them unarmed and innocent. Uh, so so. You know, but for some reason, it's a huge hole in in the consciousness. In, in certainly in the U.S., certainly in North America, um, I think there's a little more understanding of of this problem in in Europe. But but still, it's 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 missing. It's well, John. Imagine like here's something we could try to imagine. Imagine if all the foundation money disappeared overnight. What would be left tomorrow? Like what would be left of the left? Right. Like what, right. what would, what would we have if you take away 350 and sunrise and advise and purpose and all, you know, and global citizen and everybody else, what would you be left with? Hopefully anarchists and, and legitimate grassroots movements. You'd be left with a left that's not monetized. Right. Right. Um, well, I, I, you know, again, this is, um, it's very hard, you know, this has been the topic this week, I think, for all the three of us here anyway, and not Johan, but when we were talking about um, how to communicate with people, I mean, how, how do you communicate with the heavily indoctrinated um, Western populace? 
um, it, it's, it's a complex issue because I think it breaks down along class lines to some degree. Um, but uh, it's, it's, you know, we have four decades of um, coordinated um, indoctrination of, of propaganda assaults, the erasing of the working class, the erasing of working class voices, um, the destruction of, of radical dissent. And look at artists today, Hiroyuki and I have talked about this. I mean, they are so domesticated, so pacified. Um, they, the, the, they don't distrust authority, they welcome authority. Um, they welcome institutional authority. That was something that was unthinkable um, when I was 20 years old. Um, it was to distrust the man, you know, because he lied. The state lied. The government lied. Authority was to be rejected, distrusted, subverted. That's not the case anymore. Yeah, I watched a documentary a few years ago. Um, I forget what it's called, but actually the Wrong Kind of Green YouTube channel has a clip of it. And so the producer, the filmmaker is asking a group of children, not children, they're like, you know, young, young teenagers, I think 11, 12, 13, 14. And I don't know how many there are, maybe 10 or 12. So he's asking them um, what they think about, and it's all about the corporate capture of children. Um, how we, people in the West, I remember when people would attack Morales in Bolivia, oh, child labor laws and everything. Meanwhile, here, our children are literally free labor for Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, right? They're exploited in, in a different way. So um, anyway, he, he, the, the film is about that. Um, the, it's an industry, right? The capturing of children and youth by, by corporations, I think was talking about how films actually, big, um, big blockbuster films like Hunger Games would actually have children doing all their media publicity, million, you know, worth millions of dollars for free. And um, the children are exhausted and unaware of this and laying in their beds, right? Um, and um, screen comas. Anyway, he asked them at some point about selling out and what they think of it. And this is an example of how we are shaped and conditioned, right? By what's around us and by culture. And the children had no idea what that meant. Like these young kids, they did not know what that, what he was talking about, what that term that used to, everyone used to know what that meant. Your sellout, he sold out, selling out. Well, this group of kids had no concept of that term at all. That's fascinating. Wow. Mm. I think this can be, unless you wanted to come in. Okay. Uh, well, it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I think that this relates to what you just said through Schwab, Corey. That's it. I think this this process of, of atomizing society it goes back quite a long while. It, like in the introduction of the industrial revolution and, and industrial capitalism and so on, you had this uh, destruction of traditional uh, extended families and clans and cultures and so on, just to, so as to make the the atomized worker dependent on the the system. And I think I, I can see this distancing as some kind of extreme development of this process, which renders us much like we're cut off from natural relations to our peers among us. 
there is only the system left. We, we can only, there's only our trust in, in the, the authority of the system left for us to, to, to go to. Right. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, you know, um, one of the effects of, of, um, of the lockdowns has been um, that, that communication, of course, is done by Zoom, you know, like what we're doing this podcast on. Um, travel has been restricted. People can't meet up in groups. Um, my chess club is, is suspended for the moment. I can't even go play chess. But any sort of grassroots organizing um, that, that needs to take place with people in the same room leftist parties that would meet and debate and educate and argue and and come up with decisions for about policy and strategy that's all gone but it's you, what you have is our zoom meetings um and that's a whole topic to kind of deconstruct the the um the uh the effects of of um just screen interactions. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of papers out about Zoom fatigue and stuff, but that's a reasonably superficial take on it, really. Um, I think it has deeper existential um, Indeed. Uh, effects on people and and it's dehumanizing and but it's disassociative to i mean, i've said before i think that western populace populations in general are suffering mild disassociative states all the time now um and and i i feel it in myself i feel this ennui and angst and also anxiety that you know operates at a very low level but it's there um, and it's because you're denied, there's an accumulation, uh, you know, accruing of these denial of small pleasures, basic pleasures and activities. That is how you orient yourself in the physical world. You know, you drive one place, you go one place routinely, you take a Friday drive here to buy this or that. Um, I used to drive twice a month to Sweden to the ski resort town across the border to get tobacco i haven't done that for a year i miss that i miss that in some physical material way in my heart you know um let alone um more significant travel um things that that you know ideas that that are now just completely put on hold um and the precursor to, to the lockdowns has been an encouragement for people to live their lives on their smartphones and and so they do you know, and it's it's part of the destruction of language. It's part of the destruction of, um, of of you know the human capacity for for social interaction. People have stopped being able to read people's expressions. They can't read people's tone of voice. All of these things have um, you know happened incrementally, but they are reaching some kind of crisis point now. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yesterday, um, Brune, um, from a person I work with, and or no, I guess in India, Brune Matur, I believe his last name. He actually said something I thought was pretty accurate. He said, "Cultural decimation is at the root of empire. is a long-term project." Yeah, you know, but I think absolutely. 
Yeah, and and also what we we're talking about before, sort of backtracking for a moment about the depopulation thing. A part mm. of that as well, it, and it's been talked about for years now by the IMF, the World Bank, um, the aging population. And there's, you know, we have an aging population, and we have people that are coming into pensions, and there's not going to be any money for that. Mm. There's there's a huge problem with that. Right. Pension uh, shortfall. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I read a couple of articles about that. And, well, there's one solution to that, isn't there? Um, you know, kill all the old people. Yeah. And uh, actually, um, John, I think I sent you in Hiroyuki an article right out of mainstream, The Telegraph, I think it is in the UK, carried an article that the, the deaths there during COVID of the elderly, because that's basically um, where the majority of deaths are. And people, I believe, over 70 or 80, I'm, I'm not sure, like the, the more fragile, right? Um, mm -hmm. in, the, in the long care facilities, those deaths saved, I, I forget the amount, $600 million or something wow. like that, pensions. Wow. Wow. And so you can see why they have the do not resuscitate orders. Like what's that about? Right. Yeah. Um, all, all that. So, I mean, sometimes that seems for me like, oh, that's, you know, that's taking it too far. They're not going to deliberately kill people. Right. And then you think, what are you talking about? They've no problem <laughs> obliterating entire countries, full of men, women and children. They have no issue with it. No, and look, you have the, that guy who was he an Israeli doctor? I forget the one who said life isn't worth living past 75. <laughs> said that, of course, until he turned 75. But, <laughs> but um, you know, that has that has been a theme that has been that has been, um, you know, drummed on quite a bit. I mean, it's been an abuse of the elderly, but the society in general has degraded the importance of of the elderly, the old. Um, the wisdom of, of, you know, your elders, that idea has been marginalized as yeah. an idea. It no longer is. Yeah. You got nothing to learn from your, your grandfather, you know, fuck that. Um, he's just an old pain in the ass. Um, and you see that in television. Um, you see older characters are rarely treated as dignified figures of wisdom and, and um, with anything to, to, um, share with with the youth that idea is non-existent in Hollywood um, and and I don't suppose that's ultimately accidental is it um, no. anyway listen we should probably kind of I'm looking at the time we should probably I hope we can do this again with the four of us Johan it's really I'm so glad you're taking part in this yeah thanks um, it's, it's, yes yeah me too it's just great. And, um, but did anybody have final thoughts? Any of you? Mm, I guess that my final thought, just on that note, John would just be all the things I think about my, um, grandmother who passed away. I, I don't remember when, like quite a long time ago, she made everyone's wedding cake. She canned everything. I remember as a child, always having plums and cherries and peaches and pears and every other thing you can think of and you know my other grandma who's over 100 now and has been locked up for over a year mm. i haven't seen any my parents or my grandma for for yeah. eight since this yeah. started um hardly 
It's horrifying. Anyway, um, I just, you know, she knit like just the things they could do and all that lost knowledge, you know, all that, all that knowledge. And if, if just to interject quickly and then Johan yeah. and Hiroyuki, if you have any thoughts <clears throat> here in, in my, my wife's grandmother died. Um, she had two grandmothers. They were both very, very old in their nineties and they died about five or six years ago. Um, and there was a kind of community down where my wife grew up um, cousins and uncles and, and um, they were all connected to these two mm -hmm. old matriarchs. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, during the holidays, everything revolved around um, more and more um, and best of more. And uh, the, the, the two grandmothers or great grandmothers to many of the kids, um, they were the sort of um, beacon, lodestar, whatever you want to call it. I mean, they, energy revolved around them during the holidays when families got together. Uh, it was it was um, nothing specific. It was on an almost energetic level. And when they died, and they both died the same year or a year apart, that holiday community, that community that my wife grew up in, um, has disintegrated. Um, people don't celebrate together anymore because because there is this missing the the missing power of these two very old women um who had been in that community for almost 100 years right and um and i've watched that now over the last seven or eight years that um holidays have so much less meaning and i feel bad for my children who aren't able to experience what that was um so yeah it it's it's uh it's something that is is gradually leaking out of um, of our societies. Um, uh, Hiroyuki, Johan, final thoughts? Well, yeah, it, it, all those things are, uh, I would see them as the uh, preparation for the uh, restructuring. Uh, things need to be destabilized and um, uh, falling apart uh, in, in order to have new structure that's uh, more appropriate to the uh, authority, um, um, the ruling class. Um, so um, this is really a, a revealing moment, uh, seeing uh, new things are on the horizon and things are sort of falling apart and, uh, um, and it's happening really fast. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I mean, it's a it's a time to talk about it. It's a time to put everything on the table and uh, take a look at and um, uh, see where we are going as a species. Johan, final thought. Yeah, it's a it's a really important thing you're addressing here. I think because we're not not only being disconnected from each other and and unable to organize, but also we're being disrooted, disconnected from our the experience of of uh, the old people in our community that uh, is essential in so many ways. Uh, I also uh, I wanted to to mention a book which you might feel could cast a, a lot of light on these issues. Are you familiar with the uh, French uh, thinker Jacques Ellul? 
I'm sorry, Jacques who? Jacques Ellul, E-L-L. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, yes. Okay, okay. So he wrote a book in, in the late 60s called The Propaganda, The Formation of Men's Attitudes. And if you haven't read it, I, I can post a link to it in the chat here. Terrific. Well, I, read that. I, I have not read it. I've read a little of him, but not very much. No, it's, it's really it's really relevant to these issues. And I, I just want to say, too, I, I can if you're interested in writing something together, I can put together a little disposition or an outline of, of, of the work until next time we meet. So, so you have something to, tangible to look at. Yeah, great. I think this is a very good idea and we've talked about it. And, um, you know, the, the, the ABCs of um, resisting the reset uh, yeah, is yeah, a very definitely. good idea. Um, I have an article uh, I'm just finishing up. So um, I, I am uh, talking about it. So, um, yeah. Great. Super. All right, kids. Um, this was really fun and, and useful. Um, so uh, the link, I hope, will be up tonight or tomorrow. And as always, thanks to Jack Littman, um, Boy Wonder, uh, who, who puts all this together and gets it up on SoundCloud. So thank you, Corey, very much. Thank you, Hiroyuki. Thank you, Johan. And um, that'll do it, guys. All right? Thank, thank you, John. You, okay. Adios.